This is The Thirst Tank, presented by Trap Brewing Company. I think that I see people consuming values more than liquid. I think people drink the values of, of the breweries that they, they sometimes project those values onto. And sometimes they've heard uh, the the brewery, the business, the brewer, the the figurehead espouse certain values, and I think that people are trying to consume those values. Hello, and we are back. Season two of the first time is here. Uh, yeah, it's great to be back with you, and we have a whole series packed with more amazing guests. For those that might have been joining us for the first time, the aim of the first time is to take a deep dive into the journeys of some of the most creative minds that lead this industry and how they came to be where they are now, all starting from that very first sip. Thanks again, everyone who sent encouraging messages about the last series and have pestered us about doing another one. That has been the fuel to get this thing back off the ground. Now, privately and professionally, it's been a little chaotic. Me and my wife recently had our first child and two other members of the track team decided it'd be a great idea as well to have kids. So we are now three zombies out of eight, which means finding a time to put these things together has been a little bit more challenging. So as much as I'd like to say that each episode will be coming out on a week to week basis, I think we will be safer to bet that they shall be out when they're out so maybe not as regular as last time but we will try and keep them as regular as possible so episode one season two and we have a great guest a man who i've known for nearly eight years now we share the same city where we brew our beers and that man is paul jones founder of our neighbors cloudwater now i don't think it's Overly hyperbolic to say that Cloudwater have changed the game in the UK. Um, the beer scene has kind of followed them, really, and to, to a certain degree. We kind of talked about it quite a lot on season one, including having a few interviews with Katie, who used to work at Cloudwater, and Hannah, who used to work at Cloudwater as well. They've been bold, pioneering, and not afraid to ruffle some feathers. For those that no Paul or had any interaction with him, you know that he is not a man who dwells on the surface. He wants to plunge to the depths of whatever it is he's exploring. And I'm super thankful that he was so open and honest in this conversation. And I really think you're going to enjoy seeing some different sides to him and get a feel for his motivations and why he does what he does. Now, this conversation was recorded back in September, so things have changed a little bit since then, but we are still in lockdown, so... (laughs) I don't think any of the topics we kind of touched on are too time sensitive. So I will stop my rambling now and we will move to episode one. And we will start with that all important question. What was that first beer for him? I don't know whether there was a first beer. Um, I mean, you know, my journey into enjoying beer started um, with just enjoying being intoxicated as a teenager (laughs) (laughs) you know i would get high i would drink whatever fucking shit we could get from the off license Mm -hmm. um there was a couple of friends of mine uh that were 
they definitely didn't, no, none of us looked old enough, but um, they somehow managed to pass in a um, country sort of spa in uh, Somerset and come out with white lightning or diamond <laughs> white or some shit like that. Um, you know, so that would be part of my early being intoxicated uh, experiences with with alcohol. Um, I mean, I would I personally would steal a load of um, alcohol from my folks' spirit cabinet. Uh, you know, I'd take. Oh a, man, this is the, the perfect teenage kind of stories of uh, of drinking. Yeah, yeah. like basically, um, you know, I would take like a a, a centimeter of each bottle so that you wouldn't and, and my, my sc- a school friend of mine would do the same thing so uh, together you'd have two centimeters of, of beautiful whiskey or something no I mean like I, mine, mine would be like a like maybe a third of a plastic bottle full of fucking random shit his would be a third of a plastic bottle full of gin uh, anyway like so all of I think apart from the the moments around family meals when we were on holiday and when we were younger, where we might get like a you know a tiny little measure of wine to feel like we were joining in that experience with with my folks and fuck knows what the wine was like then, but apart from those experience experiences, all of all of my early sort of experiences around alcohol were basically just trying to uh, get high, get yeah. drunk, be intoxicated. Was there, was there something that like sticks clearly where you kind of shifted from the intoxication to trying something that you were actually like, oh, this is actually... Yeah, like, like Newcastle really Brown Ale. Uh, you know, I'm a, you, you can't tell from my accent. It got bullied out of me when I was seven. <laughs> uh, but I'm a Geordie and uh, my dad loved Newcastle Brown Ale. Uh, he, he wasn't particularly a beer guy. He didn't... I you know, just don't ever remember beer being part of our sort of family... Uh, uh, experience as a whole I think you know he always enjoyed his spirits and his um, his wine but Newcastle Brown Ale was definitely a drink that he had an affinity for and, and I remember actually developing a taste for that and feeling like that was a, a delicious drink so fuck knows whether um, there's anything surviving of that sort of drink experience in modern day mm-hmm. Newcastle Brown Ale that I th- think is probably this still it's probably still the same yeast but it's definitely not brewed where it was brewed and yeah. th- there's there probably have th- been things that have changed about it but i i do remember it being quite an estery malty softly hoppy beverage yeah. uh and i and i remember enjoying that I, I think really the first time that i had experiences where i knew i was enjoying beer and i was picking a beer that that i thought was delicious was when I moved up here to Manchester when I was 18 um, and I remember drinking things like Kilkenny and yeah. Caffrey's and Boddington's basically I was a fucking I liked the smooth flow stuff yeah. uh, I couldn't <laughs> I, I could never get with like the the, the yellow fizz um, it would just blow me up and mm-hmm. I thought it was trash um, oh I t- actually no actually tell a lie I remember another beer experience that stood out back when I lived in Somerset which was Cronenberg 1664 Amazing! Not the white one, the, the just the, the standard lager. Yeah, I remember. I remember. I remember again. Uh, that kind of like flavor jumped out at me. And you know what? I'm going to refer to like a third experience. I can't remember how old I was because again, I, you know, a lot of my teenage years were spent were spent <laughs> stealing trying, spirits from trying to cabinets. not be sober somehow. But um, <laughs> I remember being in 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 the states. I think we might have been in Florida uh, for a family holiday, and I remember going into a liquor store with my dad and him saying, "You know what, son? Like, just you know, pick 
uh, pick some beers. Oh, um, wow. And I'm pretty sure I came out with like Michelob and some some Miller yeah. um, beer. And I remember being really impressed. And I remember being like, oh, they've got like, they've got flavor and they all taste different. Yeah. And that might have been the first time in my life, however old I was uh, as a teenager, probably mid-teens or, or maybe even not quite mid-teens actually. But I remember having that experience of tasting different beers side by side because obviously I wasn't fucking drinking the whole bottle or yeah, can yeah, myself, yeah, yeah. right? And, and being like, wow, they all taste different. And, I, I, and that yeah. was something that I guess you don't really think about when you first start into. I mean, well, when, like you, you're when, saying, you, when the rest of your fucking life is stealing alcohol, <laughs> you don't drink, really think drinking it's fucking whatever will get you a bit pissed. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, but I, yeah, that 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 was definitely whenever that was in my teenage years. That was definitely the first time that I'd drank a range of different beers side by side and was was actually Could impressed. Really tell something. Yeah, different totally. It was like, wow, you know, they've really got their own characters, and you, and you know this, of course, because you know that you develop some kind of preference mm-hmm. uh, and, and as I've said we know you know when I came up here to Manchester as an 18 year old which was fucking 22 years ago um, you know I remember getting into all those like uh, smooth flow like Boddington's especially. yeah exactly yeah. so um, you know I obviously knew that I had a, a, a preference towards that sort of stuff then but yeah it's uh, not not necessarily like some kind of epiphany moment yeah. I think at any point really yeah So these are kind of your early steps into something. And I hope you don't mind me I'm uh, right now, Paul, I'm going to uh, refer to you as a vegetable, which is an onion. <laughs> you're a man You're a man of many layers. <laughs> yes, I said that. Um, I'm into it. But an onion, I've, an I've onion is a fucking... Like an onion is a... It improves things. Yeah. But it's I mean, also not a smoothie. Like yeah, a smoothie or a, don't like put a, an onion in a smoothie. You know, carrot juice, not improved by an onion. Yeah. Definitely not. But... I've known you now for I think it's like eight years or something. I think it's at least two years before Cloudwater started that I, I kind of first we first kind of I think I just served you at the Beagle a couple of times yep. um, and then started seeing you at gigs and always saw that you really you know each beer there was a reverence between what you were drinking and you were you were kind of really engaging with the product and I actually saw you do that not just with beer which, which is kind of why I called you an onion because I was like there's I wouldn't have been surprised if you would have ended up working in electronic music in a basement in Berlin or on a, in a kind of like religious institute, which I know that you actually did for a time being. So if you could just dive into a little bit about your journey before Cloudwater, because you, you were doing, you did work on a retreat, didn't you? As, was it a Buddhist retreat in Manchester, the yeah. meditation center? Uh, yeah. And also you've, you know, when I knew you, you were doing a lot of like electronic music and doing some really fascinating stuff with that. So there feels like a lot of angles that you could have moved in, uh, but obviously beer led you down to create what is now Cloudwater. Yeah, it's interesting. So, I, I mean, I, I worked at Sainsbury's. Uh, I did like a pe- couple of paper rounds as mm-hmm. a kid and, I, and then I worked at Sainsbury's for uh, my time through um, A-levels. And then when I came up here to Manchester, I worked at Sainsbury's again um both times mostly in the sort of produce department but I mean I remember in Somerset fuck I, I went to work like on acid once it was 
pretty bad. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I took some acid and I was like, "Fuck, I've got to work this evening. I better, I better just go." Like, and I remember being fucking high as a kite, pushing trolleys, cars, yeah. pushing trolleys around, and being like, "I fucking hope they don't get me inside to work the tills because the lights were too bright." And I was trying to smoke some weed to bring myself back into a more sensible. Anyway, like, I, yeah. yeah. I, so I had like always some kind of customer facing. Uh, job that I did um, and I think the first job that I did that I really really felt um, the first job that I did where I felt like I really got into something that that touched more than just my bank balance um, was working uh, at um, Earth Cafe it's a it's a religious business I think it still is a religious business and it's within a, a modern uh, Buddhist organization um, and work was a spiritual practice so we would work in silence every morning uh we'd start the day off with like a a study session and a reporting in so we'd all tell each other like you know how we how we're doing how we slept Mm -hmm. what we what we felt like our capacity was or something like that um and and every just about every facet of our work not just the kind of like qualitative uh, chefing or catering bits of our work but even down to our interactions and how we engage with consumers and how we engage with each other and you know what value we, we added to that work space as a place of spiritual practice like all of that was up for discussion mm-hmm. and so I mean I went into that workplace um, I went into that workplace a little bit broken uh, you know I went into that whole period of my life feeling like I needed to learn how to cope mm-hmm. better um, I was having lots of panic attacks and did you kind of without going too deep into it were you kind of late stop and start in, like smoking weed and yeah and you start, so you kind yeah, of yeah exactly almost so, like a, a more clean way of living in that time yeah I think from sort of 15 to 21 um, I spent a lot of time high mm-hmm. um, I you know I now know as a 40 year old and, and literally I've discovered this in the past year that i kind of hated myself mm-hmm. uh, since I was seven years old yeah um, and I, but I'm only just starting to, to kind of find that wound totally and be like whoa that's the seat of everything yeah. so, um, but yeah I think that I basically blotted out a lot of my teenage years and blotted out a lot of those personal frustrations with myself by being high and then when I got when I when I was up here in Manchester post studying because I came up here to study music tech um I came through uh, that course and, you know, had ambitions to, to to write music and release music and produce music. And, you know, I was doing a lot of that on the side, but I, I reached a point where I was like, fuck, I'm not coping. Yeah. Um, and I remember having, I remember just having more and more panic attacks, smoking weed. And I was like, I've got to stop. And I remember also occasionally drinking a bit heavier than mm-hmm. I wanted to. I mean, you know, fucking 21-year-old. Yeah, like everyone's course, just getting smashed um, at that point around me because I guess that's somehow natural selection. Your friendship group are a bunch of uh, people that like getting high and, and wasted as well. Um, and I and so I went, I was sober um, uh, from 21 to 27 or something. Um, oh, right. So that was a big stint of just... Yeah. Clean. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and then I was mostly vegan. Um, I meditated a lot. Um, you know, go on on meditation retreats where you know we'd be silent for an entire week, mm-hmm. um, and we'd meditate and we'd study um, and sometimes meditate for like seven eight hours a day. Um, and you know, I I knew that there was something in me that needed fixing, and yeah. that was I guess an attempt to kind of fix something. Um, 
but it was really it was really I mean it was heavy work man but it but it was also light work because I don't think I was actually ready to see the parts of me that I didn't want to see you know so yeah I spent a lot of time in that context and I really you know really developed uh and I I guess my love for serving people and for being customer facing just intensified in that time yeah like I absolutely loved all of the kitchen work I would do anything that that job required but I really love to be out front serving customers and trying to give people what they need you know yeah um and uh yeah i think that that like that experience more than anything else kind of set the tone for what i expect now out of my working life yeah you know i expect my working life to have depth uh, to be meaningful man well that is such a I was going to like wait to get onto this point, but maybe we should just pick up that. Like you have been a proponent of many things within this industry. You know, like beer has been a transporter for, I don't know. It feels that we can really build meaningful conversations around this now. Um, And you have really pushed that forward. So yeah. What was it that you didn't just want to be a brewery? You obviously, you, you, there was something so much deeper to, 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 I guess, and this is what I was kind of referring to earlier is everything you've done has kind of had a deep, when I talked to you about electronic music, you're like, it shouldn't be heard. It should be felt. And, and that kind of ethos. So how did that, when you were going to start Cloudwater, did you have that um, feeling right from the off that that was, that was what Fuck you I, wanted? No, I, I think up until very recently, I've just felt like a complete failure. Yeah. Um, and a lot of my work has been to try and counter those thoughts of being a failure or, or, or those thoughts of not being able to succeed. And how do you, how do you frame failure? I mean, I just like how I, how I personally frame uh, failure is having a sense of knowing what your values are mm-hmm. and working by those values. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and the context of that work being set in an element of like self-love and self-respect. Yeah. So, yes you can achieve loads of things in your life and i think a lot of people do focus uh uh really well on on achievements and 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 that being what they what they look to to kind of set the tone and evaluate how things are working out for them but without that also coming packaged with self-respect and self-love valuing your yourself in that work um it's not success. <laughs> right. Let's, let's skip it's, back because I think I've, I really want to dive into this more yeah, for uh, sure. further down the line. But I think given context, we should really do the run up, up to Cloudwater. Yeah, because sure. what a fucking trip that it's been like. And, and it kind of, this is what I re- I'm, I'm just trying to find that little pivot moment for you where you were like, brewery. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, so I, like I think that when I look back, when I look back at that time at Earth Cafe, where where honestly, I mean, I was working 12, 14 hour days, um, but happy doing it. Really happy doing it. Like really, really fulfilled. That work felt important. Mm-hmm. I came away from that and I did all sorts of different things. I worked in um, I worked in music tech. You know, it's kind of like selling studio equipment, and I worked in other retail jobs, and I kind of just did a whole a whole raft of kind of reasonably low level bits and bobs trying to find my feet and trying to also you know make a space for uh for me to to be creative yeah uh, and you know i mean i've written music i think continuously since i was um 
probably about 15, but from the age of about, well, from the age of, of seven, I've played music. Uh, not not very well. I'm I'm actually not particularly diligent when it comes to to learning to perform mm-hmm. with an instrument, but learning to utilize an instrument is something that I care about a lot. Yeah. So I've never really gotten myself to a point where you know like can sit in front of you with a piano and yeah, play yeah, some yeah. gorgeous music, but I can use a piano to make some some dope sounds. Um, so yeah, kind of I, I went through that whole kind of period of like constantly creating. Left the cafe, did a whole bunch of different jobs. Still had this ambition that I would have this creative output be what I did to also earn my keep yeah um and I you know I now look back and see gosh I just I I had nowhere near the confidence to do that I probably had near the technical ability and I probably had a little bit of the creative drive to kind of make new things but like like that the, the backdrop was just uh self-deprecation totally and, and know, being vulnerable is not what you want if you're self-deprecating like yeah, to put yourself sure. out there for sure so um so I, yeah like basically I, th- I think it was probably um after after Viv and I had come back from Canada we spent 2008 and a bit of 2009 um well basically like 16 months or so out in Toronto and we came back and I volunteered at the World Barista Championship down in London and I worked with a phenomenal barista called Scotty Callahan. Um and you know I was a real coffee geek at that point in time I mean I am in when I get into something like you I'm get into, into it, it yeah. you know, I want to <laughs> yeah, like learn about it that's you know. something that is definitely uh, continuous throughout your life <laughs> yeah definitely like want to go into it I want to understand what my experience is I think fundamentally because I've got that backdrop of um, you know constantly sort of trying to get deeper with my music practice mm-hmm. and my appreciation of music like I realize that there's just never a point where you feel like you know it all yeah like like you know I, I think I feel uh, less of an expert now than I ever have in my life yeah. I just feel more like well there's just an endless amount to learn so I would went to this world barista championship I'd had um, that kind of really wonderful feeling around the coffee community that there was a lot of creativity there was some like interesting science um but i definitely found coffee pretty like kind of hard and snobby yeah um and off the back of that i'd started to like consume alcohol a little bit um at that time and i had some beer experiences um around the coffee community so this is around a group of people that were like really really intensely focused on sensory experience more than any other group of people I'd ever hung around with in my life mm-hmm. including musicians because musicians would like you know um riff on on some cool song or they talk about music but, but it's generally audio based whilst like coffee is full like taste smell yeah there was, a, there was a lot of like searching for what the science was and how that was gonna how that was gonna change people's lives and how basically just the act of preparing better coffee could transform someone's life and switch them onto <laughs> wow. a, you know on, onto something new and, yeah. and more meaningful so um yeah had some beer experiences and basically started to feel a sense of um community mm-hmm. in that beer crowd it felt like uh it felt like not just uh, as a consumer but also the the producers were they were on a journey they were sharing that journey um you know ups and downs successes yeah. and failures and and just for reference like time wise what what kind of time are we talking 2009 2010 2009, yeah, yeah. 
um, and and that's where I really felt like wow this is this is there's there's a scene that's mm-hmm. that's emerging here that feels fucking great and I spent yeah I spent I guess sort of four or five years really really trying to lap up every single experience I could through that community um, through those uh, you know emerging craft beer experiences in the UK and I got to a point in 2014. Uh, where I was like, I should get involved. I had no idea that I had no idea of how. Um, I had no idea. I certainly, actually, honestly expected no, like little success, but yeah. I just knew that I would be able to throw myself into it in the way that I threw myself into my work. Um, you know, preparing things for consumption in the in the cafe. Um, and you know went through discussions with several different friends uh, started framing various different um, shapes for the business and then had the the great fortune uh, to to come across um, James Campbell um, who and, was uh, Marble at the time? Was it? Or was yeah. He so he, he, well, he was leaving Marble, yeah. and he was he was pretty dead set on uh, on doing something else. Mm-hmm. He'd been there a long time, um, and yeah, I mean, between conversations with James and several other uh, folk, we ended up settling on um, on a starting shape. And and you know, it took me. Um, I mean, fuck, we took a, an empty warehouse on next door that like didn't even have a plug socket or a or a tap in uh, the actual warehouse space. We took that on and, and, and transformed that in three months into a working brewery. Uh, but it still took me about a year uh, to find my feet within the business and basically develop a voice. Yeah. Man, uh, I mean, look, look, like when we talk about craft beer now, like beer has been produced on a small scale in England for, for a long time. Yep. But when we're talking about, I don't know whether to call it the new wave or something like that, but you guys, that was the start of that point, which was like six years ago. There was, you know, there was a few like Colonel and stuff doing great things and Pressure Drop were down there and, and then Marble in, in, in Manchester. But like it was, it felt new and different and, and it must have oh, felt like totally. a total adventure. And, and you assembled a little Ocean's Eleven team of like people, <laughs> <laughs> of people, because like you were saying earlier, like the vulnerability aspect is like, You've you've had your five years of research, so you I, I, you are confident probably in your sensory experience of beer, but the whole business side and everything that comes with owning a brewery is totally new to you. Oh yeah, well you know I don't know I, I think that I wasn't that confident around my ability to know exactly what was right. Uh, you know, on paper, I, I mean, it's still. Took me took me years of of sensory development to to really get my head around uh, the major sort of off flavors and, yeah. and recognizing those. Um, I mean, I do remember one meet the brewer with Doug O'Dell and Kirk Stall at Port Street, where I congratulated them on how buttery uh, their re- their red wine barrel aged beer was. <laughs> I was like, this it tastes delicious, <laughs> and now fucking diastole is repulsive to me. Yeah. But but I think that I think that you know what I what I. Um, tried to bring and what I still try to bring all of the time is that you know in beer in any kind of manufacturing of any uh, thing that gets consumed it's really easy to um, pull yourself into a very technical mindset Mm -hmm. look at numbers 
um, and feel like you're doing a good job because the numbers tell you good things. Yeah. Well, I don't give a shit about that fundamentally, and I still I still really try and hold on to uh, the fact that consumer experience is what makes or breaks us as a business. Totally. You know, if people are thrilled then we're doing a good job. If they're not thrilled and they're just satisfied, we're fucked. Yeah, and also you've got to get out of bed in the morning and if people aren't excited about what you do, then how can you get excited? Totally, yeah. This show is brought to you by Track Brewing Company, the place that I get to call my work. Head over to the website. It's www.trackbrewing.co. That's just .co, not .com. Um, We deliver beer nationally, fresh, right to your door. And if you haven't ordered already, what are you doing? Go do it now. Let's go back to, to that feeling of, I mean, for want of a better word, word, were you like shitting yourself when you got the keys to that place? Or was it just like total excitement or massive apprehension? Because again, it was a, a relatively new world. I think, that we, I think that we were all lucky to be so incredibly busy yeah uh that we didn't have time to feel that there was a a high chance of failure yeah and fundamentally let's be let's be really honest here you know and i've said this a lot over the years working working off uh of the platform that that we had in the company of james's expertise Mm -hmm. uh, it really it really made us feel like the least we would be able to do is make beer that people expected in those times. Yeah. And it, and it wasn't until we started moving beyond what was expected in those times to new experiences. And that, that, was, where, that was where we changed as a business. Yeah. And that's where I think the scene started to pick up the pace. Because, I, you know, as I think that there were obviously loads of... There were loads of really wonderful, uh, exciting experiences... Um, at least in in, in my uh, world, in the in the early stages of craft beers development in the UK, but I feel like in that 2014 and 2015 uh, time period, I, f- I feel like when I think back to that, um, that 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 there was a sense of um, plateau. Yeah, uh, I think that there was lots of delicious beer being made and consumed, and I think people were really happy and excited by that. And I think people probably, you know, inside and outside the industry, so brewer to to, to you know bartender to consumer, were probably all thinking, "This is great." You know, we've made it. Like we're making. We're, we're just happy to stay here. Like we'll just keep drinking. Much. Yeah, this is a nice kind of because again like we'll we'll hit on this but like there was people doing like a double ipa but it was very much not recognizable to what what is to come yeah and it was more like a kind of imperial ipa and yeah pe- people were just do- a bit sweet quite sweet and like malty and not really a huge amount of hop character in there no certainly not certainly not a, a big dry hop i mean no yeah. one no one had really like stepped that far out of yeah. the norm in terms of like hop rates um and i think that you know, I think that when we started experimenting, uh, you know, we we so my principle uh, was and still is that we're trying to make beer um, that kind of disrupts your experience a little bit. So yeah. the way I always said that was, um, there used to be these wonderful uh, meet the brewer nights at Port Street mm-hmm. until they fucked them up. 
but um, like every every, I feel like it was maybe every two weeks or something, or yeah. it might have been every month. But I feel like it could have been every two weeks. There was a meet the brewer night, and 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 you would go back every every time that they did them and you'd have all these wonderful experiences and be talked through the beer and you really as, as a as a beer geek you felt like you just could never miss that it doesn't matter what doesn't matter whether it was like a really traditional um brewery like you know uh, uh schneider came over yeah i remember uh, that one you know we had like brooklyn so garrett oliver's been to manchester a lot uh you know there was odell there was flying dog uh, you know, then there was like the Colonel. Uh, I remember that one. The Colonel, yeah, yeah Colonel were here. Um, Dark Star, uh, Ilkley. Like there was, I mean, there was just like there was the there was the the, the real sort of like length and breadth of yep. what was available in the scene. So we really wanted to make beer that um, made you feel like you couldn't miss it. Yeah, like you had to have that experience. And so my 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 first objective was: can we make beer that makes you feel like you have to stay in town? and go to the pub before you can go home like can we make beer that you just cannot wait to consume because the quality of your experience is going to be great yeah and as soon as we felt like we were starting to make that sort of beer um we then upped the ante a little bit more like can we make beer that is so good that it's kind of you know i would get home all the time and um, um, in the circle of friends uh, that I would have drinking experiences with back in that time in my life, I would get home and someone would text me and be like, oh my God, something's just been tapped. You've got to come and check it out. I remember those days. You know? Yeah. And like you would fuck it. Yeah, and, I, and I'd be like, I'm tired. And Viv would be like, just <laughs> just stay in. I'd be like, I can't. I've got to go try this. <laughs> I've yeah. got to go and try the fucking beer. So so then we, we aspired to make beers that would make you leave the house and come back into town. Can you remember the first one that you felt was that beer that what because I remember the first I went to the your first uh, kind of tap takeover I guess at Port Street and it was an eclectic mix of beers there was a goza there was a cask saison I'm pretty sure there was uh, there was like an IPA um, it was a real like it wasn't a focused kind of group of beers it was it was like covering a big stylistic range so you were saying about like kind of finding your feet with everything and was there a beer when you remember just being like holy shit this is gonna get people fucking jumping I don't know whether there was actually because we've always been um certainly not in our first year I mean the Seville Orange Sour stands out for me yeah Bergamo Hot from Vice NZ Hot from Vice NZ IPA you know there were a bunch of beers that definitely stood out for me as being fucking delicious but not all of those styles um, or not all of those beer experiences really, like, whipped people up into a frenzy. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it was the, the, the much talked about and much fabled um, double IP Let's series. Let's do it. Let's go <sighs> yeah, there. You've got to yeah. fucking go. <laughs> but this is, this is when, like, I feel like you guys were always, you know, bubbling under the surface and were a, a name that everyone in the small kind of like craft beer industry new but i guess this is where you really start taking the lead which was like when you guys started doing the, the double ipa series which really yeah i mean we just w- w- we, w- is is now a t- changed the game really yeah like, i think i think so many things about that series um opened up producers and consumers minds to what beer culture could be in in the uk um you know at that point in time people were making um, big hoppy beers, but maybe annually, mm-hmm. and feeling like that was enough. 
Um, and I remember thinking like, fuck, I, I, I want us to, I want us to make like a big hoppy beer. I'd, I'd been, uh, I'd been down the whole West coast of the States, flew into Seattle, flew out of San Diego, spent a month on the coast, um, uh, in 2015. And that was something that, um, that was something that just completely uh, blew my mind, left me feeling very much like there was lots of um, very hoppy beer styles out there that we weren't really getting into. We were we were a little bit uh, in the wheelhouse of, again, what was expected back in 2015, 2016, until we started to try and like hit the gas and catch up with your Smiths, yep. your Sierra Nevadas, because uh, I imagine drinking it on the west coast as well, you were just getting—it was just so it was, fresh. It was just fucking insane. Yeah, and I remember, I remember, I remember the trip culminated in what is still a place that I'd—if I could click my fingers and be anywhere, it'd be Pizza Port, Ocean Beach. And I remember being there and drinking all their Imperial IPAs and just being fucking blown away at wow. like the 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 quality and the depth of flavor and just the kind of like top to bottom of the glass hoppiness. Um, and so. You know, we'd we'd had all these imperial IPAs, and we'd be making these these uh, hop from vice beers, which were really yeasty and uh, full bodied from the malt. And we just started putting all that stuff together. We'd never had um, we'd never had like a, a hazy soft IPA, yeah. But but we but we were just hungry for like what can we get out of all these ingredients that we've got to work with. And I think you know that series of beer for us. It was a real clear demonstration that that the consumer wanted to go on a journey, that the consumer really wanted new experiences, yeah. that they had a lot of appetite for coming along on that journey with you as a producer. Uh, you know, and, and there were there were uh, V numbers that no one speaks about anymore. Really, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but uh, but but that that proved a point more you know our first year's brewing was like four seasonal ranges so four three-month ranges of beer where we tried and we made tens upon tens of different styles of beer in our first year of production yeah but we tried to demonstrate this kind of like seasonality that we all that we all were drinking and that was a kind of quite founding principle of cloudwell wasn't yeah, it? Totally. That seasonality. yeah like uh, you know modern seasonal beer is still are are kind of like I don't know whether it's our slogan, but yeah. kind of tagline. It explains what we're still searching for. Um, so, yeah, I think that like centering ourselves on beer experiences that we knew were really exciting to consumers was fundamentally what changed us as a brewery from being a little bit focused on what we wanted beer to be to that overlap between what we really care about and what consumers really cared about too yeah. and and I think that that shift for us happened in 2016 and from that point on we've tried to stay in that overlap now now we you know we make a very wide variety of beer styles I don't think there are many breweries in this country that make the amount of different beer styles that mm-hmm. we have done in these past five years I think if we were to top them up we'd, we'd be up there possibly at number one for for the range of styles that we've turned our hands to yeah i mean i've said it a few times of of what we were doing down the road which was just like we did i think we did three stouts one red ale and everything else was just purely hot based like pale ales and and ipas and you guys would like i say that that first first time you put your beers on taps it was a smorgasbord of different uh 
styles. And it's still something, you know, th- I think a lot of what we do in that respect still, it, it still flies under the radar. Uh, yeah. Because I, I, what, I think when I talk about flying under the radar, I really mean that, like, it doesn't drive a, a, a particular set of consumers wild on social media. Yeah, I mean, we again, we can get into, like, Lager, for instance, which is such a... Every brewer that you... Again, I've done this is the 11th one, and every brewer just loves Lager. Like, that's just this kind of round trip that you go on all these sensory experiences, and you just come back to this clean, crisp, beautifully produced beer um, that doesn't get all the uh, people singing. It gets brewers singing, but it yep. doesn't really get anyone else kind of, like, off the couch, you know? Um, yep. So back to that double IPA, though, was that kind of just, like... Click of the fingers, people are just like boom. What is this? This is something new. Not, not really. We made so we made a first double IPA to celebrate. Uh, it wasn't. We, we we were a little bit confused about what our um, what our brewery birthday should be. So we you know we we got the keys on the seventh of November, um, but we made our first beer on Valentine's Day. Yeah, and so we were like, oh, we should do something to mark like getting the keys and being a year into like being on site so we brewed a double ipa and an imperial stout and we loved the double ipa and we decided we brew it i mean we put it on cask and we threw a pie and got fucking hammered in the brewery um and just had a load of people down drinking for free just to celebrate that moment um you know that's something that we continue to do for a couple of years after that but we you know we decided to brew another double ipa where we where we were all conscious of tweaks that we could make mm-hmm. um and it and it was that you know much much talked about still and fabled v3 uh our ambition for that beer was um to go to brewdog's agm which was like the most insane thing that we could imagine doing yeah. five thousand people uh for one weekend um, we were like we have to we have to try and make the the beer of the festival and you know it's fucking preposterous to suggest something like that especially as such a young brewery it's ambitious though and that's kind of what the whole this whole this whole brewery has been built on ambition totally I mean, you, like if you don't if you don't try if you don't try to um achieve something that's 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 better than what you've ever done before i mean you just will never fucking get yeah, there totally. so so we set out with that ambition and 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 we and we nailed it like we came away from that festival with hot on everyone's lips um everyone was talking about that particular beer we got invited to modern times festival of dankness off the back of it which which you know then that august that became our first appearance so we were a year not even a year and a half into brewing and we were were in california shitting ourselves about just making a fool of ourselves like somewhere that i felt was the spiritual home of ipa yeah um but you know we we uh had, it kind of seems a little bit ridiculous to say but yeah i mean it was fucking intense scary full of doubt full of the risk of failure um but we just we we, we were so excited every single time we felt like we made progress and our consumers were so excited to to feel like they were with us on that journey too uh, that that's what just kind of spurred us on so yeah I mean still to this day we still fuck up a lot of beers because we continue to experiment and try new things and I mean, I don't think we take quite the risks that we used to mm-hmm. uh, because th- there's a weight of expectation um, that we feel we have to meet but also this process that you've you guys have dialed in a lot more like where where yeah. you hop to and all of those kind of things because yeah. because you know back then those double IPAs were probably risky to a to a degree you totally. know what I mean where, where now it's like 
a bread and butter beer that you would you would be putting two or three through a month, I guess, for you guys at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it was risky. We uh, we had no I mean I remember you know almost getting into arguments here about how expensive that beer was going to be and, and, and how we would never recover our money um, and then and then literally like six months later um, well it was actually seven or eight months later to be honest with you when we were actually brewing V6 the appetite was so insane for for those beers that we we wrote to all of our customers that were buying our beer many of whom uh, were like really skeptical on the first day but like really into it by then and we wrote to our whole customer base and we said whatever it is that you pre-order by this date we will make you will have a guaranteed amount of um, cases of bottles or kegs whatever it is that you that you commit to buying and we i, I don't think people paid up front at all but yeah. i think they just committed to buying and, um, so you were kind of just knowing that the cost was going to be covered for these beers that you were producing. Yeah, yeah. We knew we knew that we were, we knew that they were sold essentially for the first time. So we we turned over sixty five percent of our seller to one beer. Whoa. Yeah. So I mean that and that was a fucking massive risk because if we I mean thankfully we didn't fuck the beer up but if we'd have fucked that beer up and this up, is V3 is it 6 V6 okay yeah, yeah. So, so the appetite is like absolutely yeah it just went nuts yeah. and that's what we took out to um to San Diego and it and it and it worked out a bit of a a bit of a hit for some of the brewers out there um so yeah I mean I think it's like we still I think that one thing that that feels really difficult for us to do now is work with that sa- exact same energy uh, because obviously there's a lot more ground that's been covered now by a lot of other breweries. Yeah, uh, that chance to transform the scene, uh, uh, it hasn't passed completely. There are plenty of other types of work to engage in. Yeah, uh, around beer, other than just the kind of sensory experiences of it and the kind of you know the the bricks and mortar experiences like the taproom experience etc um now the digital experience yeah uh, there's plenty of other things to dig into um, you know but now it feels like there's just so much ground that's been covered the brakes are off completely um and so now most of our time is okay you know we're still thinking about what yeasts are out there and what hops are out there and what uh, brewing practices are out there that we can experiment with and is uh, you know of course we're always thinking about what other ways in which we can take our consumers experiences forward but we're no longer I think just thinking about the the liquid and the artwork now for those that are joining us for the first time listening to this podcast Maybe this is the bit where I say go back and listen to our interviews with Hannah Murphy and Katie Peach. In both those episodes, we talk about what it was like in the early days of Cloudwater, as they were two of the first employees, uh, two of the early employees, should I say, of the brewery. And they were moving like a freight train uh, with lots of people kind of learning on the job and you get a real inside view of what that was like. Here we ask Paul what his experience was like of that time and where his head was at with it. You are listening to The First Time and this is our interview with Paul Jones. Like I get so excited and also super nostalgic talking about all this because obviously we were just down the road. Um, I've actually had Hannah, Hannah Murphy on and Katie Peach on uh, who both worked for 
for you. And I just wondered if you, and so a little bit of behind the scenes of what was happening at Cloudwater then, because this was, it feels like a wave, just this huge surge that's moving through the beer community. Loads of excitement, but also behind the scenes brings with it certain amounts of stress. And like you just said, 65% of a seller to one beer is a huge, huge gamble. So I just wondered how you were feeling with it. Were you, were you confident in what you were doing or did you still feel super vulnerable and uh, kind of in, uh, the imposter syndrome or were you just running as fast as you could without really looking to the sides? No, I tell you what. So um, I feel like we've been on some, in some way, shape or form constantly attacked yeah. Uh, I mean, when we did our first launch events, we drove two coach loads of people from Port Street to the brewery remember, because we were yeah. really proud to show it off. And we were excited and we wanted to say, look, we're going to try and do something really cool in this city. Not that there wasn't cool things going on. We loved everything that was going on, but we we're like, we're going to do something more and something extra. And I remember that, you know, a couple of hands went up like, where have you got your fucking money from? This is making me suspicious. And we, you know, we, we, we faced like a lot of, we faced an intense amount of ridicule scrutiny, yeah. and opposition and scrutiny from uh, people that have been working in the industry for many years. There were a lot of folk that were highly critical of us, some of our customers, uh, you know, in private conversations, but sometimes publicly would be like, you're fucking mad. This isn't going to work. Uh, we obviously had to uh, we, we had to sort of make headwind um, with taking consumers expectations beyond where they were because I mean you know we were pouring some of the UK's first hazy cask beers yeah. and people were like what the fuck like I'm not going to drink this shit you know and so there was a lot that there's a lot that we had to do in our early years uh, to sort of cut through um, and uh, you know like not just open the door but kind of burst through it yeah um, and and yeah that definitely took a lot it, it it took a lot of energy and I think that even all these years on um, because we felt like we had to be vocal about what we were doing and why you know we've kept our voice um, up uh, you know we've said we've said things that um, other businesses say privately yeah but don't have the don't have the appetite or courage to say publicly um and you know i think in, i think in that sense we we continue to take risks yeah it's, it's easier to be in the shadows it's i mean this is right this is a huge point now because I, I i think we should really tackle this head on like the you have stepped on the, that pedestal many times and whenever you step on something like that people are going to want to push you off it and that is, again, that is a huge risk because there's a lot of people that would be like, just stick to brew and beer, mate. I mean, how many times have you guys had that? <laughs> like, okay, if, you just, if you just put that in your email inbox, I imagine it's like hundreds and hundreds. Yeah. And this is, this, is, this is the new part of beer, really. This is like, we have a community of people that we engage with and it's how we engage with those people. And the premise, like, do you want to just run a business or do you want something to be meaningful? And, and going back into all your experiences... It feels like you never wanted to just run a business. You wanted something to be meaningful. I mean, like I'm trying to live a good life. Yeah. This is what the business is about. Yeah. And I'm trying to make a business that I hope is already contributing to people living a fulfilling life. Uh, do you think, because really, I guess that first pedestal was just beer. It was the beer that you were putting out and the price point that was coming with that. Oh, I don't know, actually. Do you think you was, there was something? Yeah, because there was no other brewery owner 
uh, that was quite as visible or vocal in yeah. social media. That's true. Uh, I would definitely agree with that. You know, I think that I think that there were there. Were, it's not like other brewery owners weren't accessible, mm-hmm. but um, uh, I, I feel like I definitely put myself right out there. Um, you know, I, I assumed that role of being very customer facing, very accessible. Um, I wanted to make sure that. You know, when people had questions that they needed to ask about the beer, I was available to answer them. When they had critiques, I would try and uh, I would try and shelter the crew uh, in the brewery from them and take them on the the chin instead. And, and yeah, I mean that definitely came. I mean, I had like many, many, many sleepless nights um, every single year running this business. Yeah, uh, there, there definitely was and still is uh, an emotional and sort of mental price to pay uh, because people think that uh, somehow by by um, by having that kind of like public um, space and occupying a bit of that public space there's just this expectation that um, you deserve some shit. Well, I mean, you were operating <laughs> under the guise of Cloudwater then as well, weren't you, in the early days? So everyone, everything was attacked purely at Cloudwater as yeah. well, um, which must have been really hard. And also, you, so you kind of... I remember you literally just taking a little bit of a sidestep because I think it must have been so emotionally draining and just the mental headspace that it takes up. To deal with this, um, and I think you did. You take a little sidestep off social media for a little bit to try and. Well, I, I managed to do that once we'd bought in um, a couple a of staff, people. yeah, yeah, to, to to kind of man that part of the uh, of the business. So yeah, but it, you know, even even then, I mean, it's still to this day, people people. Um, I think one of the things that that happens, and it's and again, this is something that's only dawning on me right now, is because there are a lot of businesses that employ very passionate people, but those businesses do not make outlets for that passion. In fact, they try and contain it and mm-hmm. shelter it from public view. They don't speak about particular issues, or they're not active on particular issues, or they're not that they're not voicing their opinions and i think there's basically a lot of people for whom when opinions get voiced in 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 the beer space in the uk there's a lot of people for whom they need that messaging they need that statement to fit their views too yeah and i think that that's some of the weight that that we feel that weight of expectation so you know when we get something wrong it might be no more wrong than uh than than any other business but because we do that very publicly and again there's that gap to fill there's that gap there's that gap of of immense silence that almost sort of vacuum uh that's left by um by a lot of other businesses and we get the way you know i get employees from other breweries uh reaching out and sort of saying hey you should adjust this this perspective or this statement i'm like I mean, maybe you could tell your manager rather than <laughs> me. You know, lots of people from other companies. Well, I mean, but but that's what that's what that's what happens in in beer social media. Yeah, uh, because I think that there's a lot of people that are really passionate who aren't who don't feel like they can affect change in the industry through their own companies. Yeah, through their own jobs, and so we feel a little bit of weight of expectation from the whole beer community that. You know, if we're gonna if we're gonna speak about something, we we must take into account the the broader perspective outside of company, outside of the company's view. And I mean, you know, as a company now, we're forty five people. Yeah. Uh, 
it is absolutely not the case that it's a single perspective that gets offered out there. It's a kind of distillation of, of, of the people of, of all of us and yeah. all of our views. Uh, but of course, you know, every company develops a bit of a culture, and we definitely have a, a little bit of that here. But I, I, you know, I think that it's, I think that what I what I really wanted to do um, by being out there and still by us being out there is to show our consumers that like yeah we care about what you think and we care about what you feel and we care about what you want and uh, also that you have values you're not a faceless entity that you you absolutely. embody something absolutely that's really it's it's really important because i think that you know if, if your values are like yeah we've been keeping beer cold since day one we had a cold <laughs> store since day one i mean that like that's cool but like also who gives a shit yeah um you know we've been trying to experiment and like also for, there are some people for whom uh, that matters little so i think trying to broadly trying to broadly express our values in everything that we do uh, so from the beer to the to the quality of the beer um you know in in very real uh, measurable terms the quality of the the packaging and the artwork and yep. the design and presentation and, and then the presence on social media felt like that was a that needed to be part of it too yeah and i think it's i think you guys have always kind of been on the front fit, foot of a lot of these a lot of movements of where beers moved to like you just kind of touched on the art side of things but like your initial cans were local artists that were then given a platform which was the beer to to um to showcase their artwork um oh man there's so much i want to ask you about here paul but i've been so excited to do this interview because i feel that a lot of people see what we've just talked about which is the front the social media side of like putting out statements and things like that and then we'll attack but i don't know how many people actually have the story of who you are as a person and how cloudwater came to be before that so just to dive back into kind of like the beer and 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 these trends let's let's dive into the can situation to just bring it back into into the brewery because again this is a seismic shift in the uk beer industry because before you know bottle shops that's what we call them bottle shops they would have bottles and stuff the 440 can was a total a total new thing and and you know britain has a very much kind of like uh conservative alcohol consumption in the fact that they really like a lower abv beer and they like to drink pints of it so when you started smashing nine percent double ipas into cans how did how was that going down i mean it just it didn't go down very well yeah it was another thing that the the industry the 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 people that had worked in the industry for uh for for a lot longer than we had been formed as a company were like oh this is fucking nuts I yeah mean, I, I certainly remember internal conversations around like it's trashy cans are trashy like no one wants canned beer and i'm like they just don't want shit beer and shit beer is what comes in cans at that point in time in the uk so if you went into a supermarket you saw some fucking sad beer on the shelf uh, and it wasn't particularly very nice. And if you were in a supermarket, however, and you saw bottled beer, it was probably more of a chance of it being a, a real ale yeah. and a bit more interesting. So, um, yeah, the shift to cans was was just a, a quality move. So we felt like we got everything possible out of our 
uh, Mahin filler, the filler that you guys ended up running for a while too. Um, Which is we, very. We, we've talked about it in a previous one to Hannah. I was just like, oh my god, my, I, I, I'm so glad we didn't run with that for too long. It's so intense. So we, we, we wanted to make a we wanted to make an improvement of of quality from that filler uh, with a with a packaging line that we could afford, and, and a canning line was affordable enough mm-hmm. for us at that point in time uh we reinvested some more money we didn't have the money in-house to do that so uh we invested more money into the company uh my wife and i and we did that to bring the canning line in um and really the step up to 440s was like well that's what's happening in the u.s so yeah. there's clearly an appetite for it um but also well, if you take that oxygen exposure at a 330 mil can, but you use a third more liquid, then you've got less DO per per can. Yeah. You've got less oxygen impact per can. And I was like, let's do it. I uh, love I love that there's that, like, I think that people just think that it was a stylistic reason, but no I love that there was a total, like, was, scientific was, reason. It was 100% a quality objective. Quality, now, yeah. now, now, we also, yeah, 440s of double IPAs were like, mind-blowing for a lot of people um but we also we also felt like 330s of a sessionable beer were just not enough yeah um and you know especially when we were going out to gigs and stuff and we get a 330 mil can we'd fucking chug it back and we'd be like oh, i need to go back to the pissing queue again mm. um so we felt like 330s just weren't weren't cutting it we felt like we wouldn't be able to get the quality improvement that we would get with a 440. And then when we looked at the other can sizes available to us, 500, 568 just felt like they were too big, especially with those stronger beers. Yeah, full pint So 440 was like, you know, pretty close to a two thirds measure. Um, and so that's where we ran with it. And, uh, you know, again, that was just another thing that, it was another thing that happened at that point in time and was met with resistance it was met with ridicule um i imagine from like inside the industry and outside the industry as i well. mean yeah. like most of the most of the resistance was from inside the industry yeah. most of it was like you just won't sell it yeah uh, like like good luck you and know? It, like this is the the thing that i love about being able to talk about this is that being actually at the the press like being at the point of change like that now if we look at a a bottle shop uh, shelf that is gonna be predominantly 440 cans and and it got to the point you know we got your canning uh, bottling line and we were just being like uh yeah the beer's really nice but just no one buys bottles anymore and you're just like (sighs) right so that's how huge the difference has become and 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 again you guys were kind of leading the charge on that and i love that it it actually boils down to a quality issue not like some sense of like we want to do it because it looks good. It was just... I mean, the only thing that was in my mind about, like, the look and the feel of it was I was going into bottle shops and yeah. seeing a load of British beer in bottles and the, the the stuff that people were kind of losing their shit about, the rare beer that people were losing their shit about were 440... Well, they weren't 440 mil cans, but they were the equivalent yeah. coming in from the estates. And I was like, people are buying these cans. They yeah. are... Like, it's not that people have an aversion to cans. They just... And, and, and if anything, actually, at that point in time, people were getting more excited because cans meant something new. Yeah. And so... And, and that's what drove my confidence up to the point where I could hear some of our uh, distribution customers and our bottle shop customers, I could hear them say, you're wrong, it's going to fail. And I'd be like, I don't think I'm wrong, actually, pal. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and you stuck and with it. And we you, stuck with it. I mean, look, yeah. we had the ability, the, the, the canning line that we use now can 
operate with different can sizes. We just have yeah. never adjusted it because, well, um, all canning lines uh, that we've ever been near um, of around this sort of price point, I mean, they're all um, essentially really uh, finicky, temperamental. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they they work, but just. Yeah, and so you really don't want to you really don't want to be touching them and adjusting anything that you don't have to adjust. So yeah, we just stuck with it and uh, ran, ran from there really. Another part, like that's it's just so cool to like think of like like looking back and how how the industry's changed over the years. And another huge part of that, I think, was the exploration that you kind of were on globally. Like Cloudwater really didn't just settle on being this kind of northwest brewery you had just mentioned about going to modern times, but you, you were doing some, you went on just a voyage of discovery. I feel like there was a good swathe of time where you were just traveling around America. And what were you doing in that time? Was that purely just uh, reconnaissance missions, you know, going back and just like seeing what's out there? You recognize that the American market especially was a little bit further ahead than, than what the UK market was. Yeah, so there was, a, there was a, a, a f- several things really. So I think looking at, looking first and foremost at the fact that I very much felt like American beer culture wholesale was ahead of British beer culture in its development. Yeah. It was further down the path. It was closer to the consumer. It was making more adventurous beers, more accurately, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to experience that firsthand. And I wanted to have those firsthand experiences so that I could come back, not just with a, you know, oh, I had a nice beer on holiday, but no, I was sat in the tap room and I caught the vibe, and I think that this is why it makes sense to people. And I had, and I went on a, I went on a quest not just for, um, putting myself in the position of the consumer. Most of that's most of the 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 sort of early travel was without any reaching out ahead of time. You were just I, turning up. I was just a consumer. Yeah, you know, I was just sat at the bar having a beer. Um, and that was most of what those early trips were. As soon as doors started opening and professional networking was happening, like I wanted to knock at every door and I didn't want to just go and have a beer, but I wanted to get to know the people that were making the decisions that made those beers or the people that were making the decisions. You didn't want to speak. I mean, like obviously bartenders are incredible and super knowledgeable, especially in the US, but you wanted to go, go to the source. Yes, definitely. Because I wanted to come back with something that would allow us to offer different experiences to Mm -hmm. our consumers here. And I wanted to fundamentally understand from from both sides of the bar or both sides of the taproom bar or you know from from kind of like inception to to drinking experience i wanted to understand what the hell was making this this thing that was so captivating to me um and so you know i think it was i mean i felt like i definitely felt like a massive imposter terrified every single time yeah uh i mean it really is only been the last couple of years where that is no longer the case and I feel, the friendships have developed yeah i mean the friendships have developed but also i just feel i know i know what i know yeah i know what i've thought about i know what i've lain awake in the middle of the night thinking about i know what i've you know poured over in my mind thousands of times had hundreds of conversations about etc etc so i feel a, that there is a level of confidence now that i don't feel like the imposter that i used to feel yeah. like um but yeah i mean all of the 2016 2017 trips 
they were all like I was fucking shitting myself. It must know. be. They, they, yeah, I mean, you are literally trying to go to the head chef in the kitchen to talk to him about the meal you've just eaten. Yeah, and like, who are you? <laughs> yeah, who are like, you? You know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank, thankfully, I think so. Uh, I don't want to. Ma- I don't want to make it sound like I was really that bold because the other part of it was that I recognized that people's perception of British beer was tired and dusty. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, maybe, maybe we still work with Shelton. I don't know. I don't know what's happening with that company, but, um, but you know, a lot of what Shelton were, were, were taking over to the States. Um, a lot of what people thought British beer was, was just trad. Yeah. And, and, and so the modern beer had no visibility whatsoever. People weren't really conscious of there being a modern beer scene. And I was like, I want to fucking change that. I want to, I want to let people know that yes, America is, is doing incredible things with modern beer, but that there are exciting things being done in Europe and in the UK. And so I felt like, I felt I felt like that was something that I could do for the scene. Yeah. And I knew and I knew that um you know there's this old saying like a rising tide floats all boats. Uh, kind of if they're seaworthy. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know <laughs> but, but I, I knew that candidate. I knew that if we if we were out there as a single entity I knew that if we did anything to put the UK on the map and to highlight the work being done in the UK in modern beer, I knew that that would um, that would help other breweries open those same doors. Yeah. So I knew that any networking that we did would eventually be something that would be of use. And and I mean that's okay. It's kind of crazy. Just in fucking February, like our festival, we bought over. You ended up with like. 80 breweries um, and and we knew that we couldn't brew with anywhere near the number of um, of our friends that were coming over from the states so we actively tried to network people through to other breweries here where they could make uh, the best use of their time mm-hmm. their trip where they could develop new friendships where essentially like all of those visits be produced a longer and broader tale of collaborations and beers and, that the and friendships yeah for sure man like i i like you I, it definitely feels like you guys were bringing over stuff that was just you know other half for instance was that a known name over here before you guys kind of shipped it over i'm not sure like maybe not to to most people um people like the veil and all of this stuff but i mean bringing that connection which feels like it's really rocketed over the last, you know, three, four years. And you guys were a huge proponent of, uh, because because of these trips you were doing and you were talking and you were giving American brewers a sense of what, there were things bubbling up over here that were exciting. You know, some of the, 100% some of the favorite beers that we've produced and people I've met have been from like America or uh, Europe and places that have come to Collective in Manchester and we've met through the festival one way or another. And the globalization of beer that feels like it's kind of really, really uh, rapidly increased over what? I, I mean, when were you doing this? 2016. So yeah, four years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 fucking nuts. It's nuts. Like yeah. that friends, family, and beer is. I honestly like get all cheesy now, but like feels so. That weekend is so fulfilling. I, I, I was on a come down after the first one. Because it was such an incredible experience of 
I mean, it was intense anyway. We could go into that <laughs> I mean, uh, for many reasons. But just, I was going to come down and just like, I mean, I love talking to people where he's doing this conversation, but just the incredible people that were around, both drinking and uh, pouring, and the collection of breweries just, and, it, and it's our, you know, it's our city, it's Manchester, like it's, it feels so so beautiful to have him here. It was, it was something I'll forever be grateful for, really, I think, like, and, and some of the friendships that have sprung out of that uh, a lifelong, I hope, you know. Definitely. Uh, um, and you were going over there when modern times were just this tiny little brewery in San Diego, weren't you, before they kicked into this hyperdrive that they are now. Yeah, but yeah like I say, that was, our, so that was our first festival. I remember, um, you know, I remember meeting uh, Tim from Cellarmaker and, and a number of other people and just being like, just fucking shitting myself completely. Yeah. Um, and, and, and again, feeling like... I'd, this might be our only chance like we can't blow it um, well it's all the pressure when you pull that beer through <laughs> and you just like try it like you know and, 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 and again this is this this is something that uh, I think is has always been a very very clear objective of ours is that we knew that anything that we did that uh, that saw us in positive light would uh, would be of benefit and of use to the to the whole scene here mm-hmm. in the UK and, and especially to Manchester, and so you know it's, it's it's something that we try to remain very conscious of. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why uh, why we decided to be bold and big with the festival and bring so many breweries to Manchester was, you know, recognizing that all of those people here would help put Manchester's scene on the map themselves. Yeah. And they, it was, I guess, like Indyman had done a, a pretty good, like a really good job of collecting people, but not on a global scale. Nationally. Like, I mean, yeah. like, you know, I had many conversations with Indyman organisers over the years where I was like, there could be a, a, a broader a big, presence. Yeah. And, and Indyman's objective has never been to uh, to reach out and, 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 and centre itself in any way, shape or form around import beer. Yeah. Certainly there are a few relationships there that, that um, you know, that, that Indyman's crew of of courted and developed and and that are useful and and, totally. and and much loved by by the festival goers there but indie man for me has always been like the cross-section of what's happening in uk beer yeah um whereas friends and family our objective and we're not even started but our objective is to uh make friends and family into that cross-section of what beer is yeah and I, and I don't say modern beer there you know we're, we're we're looking to to get friends and family into a shape where more than any other event that you could possibly go to it is going to give you a sense of like what beer is at that point in time yeah um and so you know we're we're, we're trying to court relationships with traditional brewers as much as we are with modern brewers yeah we're i mean trying- jw leeds was you know yep. with the first like opening party was at one of their pubs and you got exactly. you got him up he's been brewing for 50 years so like having yeah. a chat about yeah, about Paul that Wood, and the heritage yeah. of, of of manchester beer as well yeah and you know it was amazing to have those guys pour at the festival yeah um salopian uh amazing you know, to have to have wilf come down etc like we're going to continue to do that because what we want to show is we want to show the consumers that there's actually a lot of love i mean you know you said it before a couple of times but you know there's a lot of love in the brewing community for not just lagers but traditional beers full stop well when you get a herd of americans over american brewers what is the thing they want to drink cask beer cask 
beer. Yeah, I, I actually was having a conversation last night with someone who I won't name because they're working on a new project, but experiences had in Manchester in February are, are actually going to create a, something of a cask beer bar Wow! in, in, in a, in a um, city in America that doesn't have that yet. And so, you know, that's not us. We're not doing that work. But part of the opportunity that arises from being somewhere new and having new to you beer experiences and having that deeper dive means that you can bring, uh, earnestly bring something back. So, I'm, you know, we're going to do what we can do to support those efforts. Yep. Um, you know, we've got things that we're learning from that company about the way that they make beer. They're going to learn a thing or two, I hope, from us yep. about how we approach cask beer. Um, and probably within the next year, um, you know, th- there'll be a bar that serves that style of beer that just i don't know we even know whether it exists in that state no i mean yeah it's a it's a rare thing and it's such a it's something that kind of i've I've mentioned it a few times on the on the podcast but it almost got sold back to me by having american brewers over and being like wow well, you just want to go drink cask and i was like really like because i was just so so buzzing about like really hot forward beers and stuff and then and then kind of going actually this is this is fucking yeah this is amazing and it's and it's so like regional it's it's this tiny little thing that exists especially in the north um that that has like hundreds of years of cellaring experiences that go into it when you go to like really good pubs yeah uh hundreds of years of just production of the beer for sure yeah um so yeah it's a beautiful thing and that's amazing that 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 could extend out to the states and they could they could do something like that totally up to six years now uh, six years february yeah uh, so basically six years in yeah it will be six years in february and i know regrets are strong words so i don't really want to go there but just like how would you sum it up as a do you do you think everything has happened in the right order or were the things that you'd go back and shift to to slightly change uh i mean fundamentally uh that's such a difficult question. <laughs> I um, I definitely hate the fact that we don't work with everyone that ever worked here. Um, yeah. I hate to see anyone go yeah. uh, for whatever reason. I feel I feel a sense of failure mm-hmm. um, around um, around some of the people that we no longer work with because they're all great people and they've gone on to do really fucking cool things. Definitely. Uh, but you know, it's also nice. Uh, it's also been a nice experience to see people come through, get their teeth into maybe a bit of what they wanted to get their teeth stuck into and, and, and obviously reach a point where they weren't being as fulfilled as they wanted to be in the work and they've gone on to hopefully get more of a sense of fulfillment elsewhere. Uh, so, you know, if, if I have regrets um, uh, that, that feel, um, you know, that... that, that, that that I experience uh, in some negative way. I think it's only just around the people. Yeah, uh, and it's only it's only around um, it's only around that sort of sense of like, fuck, could could we have done something different together? You know, could they have done something different? Could they have brought different expectations? Could mm-hmm. could they could 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 I have uh, brought a different experience to them? Could I have teased a different thing out of them? Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I think that there's just that kind of constant sense of. Um, there's a little nag in the back of my mind with every single person that's come through the business and gone on so, to, to do something else elsewhere. And, and that that number of people isn't that high. A lot of our staff have been with us, uh, you know, for five years, for six years, for four years. There's a, there's a lot of 
a lot of the crew that are here now feels like they're going to be with us for quite a long time yeah which i think is really exciting but i think that that's that's something that you know it's something that kind of plays in my mind about the history of the business so far it's like could we have done more for those people that weren't as satisfied as they wanted to be with their time here yeah. um and so that is something that 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 is is a kind of like reoccurring reflection and i think it's important because uh you know ultimately we're, like i say we're not just trying to be a business here we're trying to be somewhere that that is helping create a fulfilling life for the team yeah and so you know when someone moves on uh you know we're we're always spending time thinking about what, what could we have done differently yeah what should we have done differently how would we do things differently in the future and we're always growing and learning from that so don't necessarily regret the learning opportunity don't, don't i <laughs> yeah. don't regret the progression that the company goes through on the back of that but there are a lot there are where there are what ifs they're only around like around what, people you know, what, what if they were still here yeah. what if we were able to think about ways for them being more satisfied but that said you know we have always grown and continue to develop and continue to move on so i obviously don't regret that in the slightest so you know i think the only other thing that i would say is um i think that the the only other sort of regret that i have really is around not still not feeling like i don't i don't feel like i've solved um a rather pervasive problem in the industry and that pervasive problem is i don't think that we've done anything to solve why people are um so intense with each other within the industry Mm -hmm. so whether that's consumer to brewer being like fuck your beer one star which hurts like there's not a brewer in this country that gives a shit that isn't hurt by that yeah whether it's that consumer to brewer experience or whether it's the bottle shop to brewer or brewer to bottle shop like there there is an unbroken chain or cycle of like frustration mm-hmm. and and uh, and angst and hurt and you know everybody whether it's consumer to business owner everyone gives a shit that's why we're all somewhere around the same yeah, table like really know? gives a shit yeah like, for sure and yeah i mean like on a music standpoint if someone just give you your album and one star review it would like be devastating You'd well, no it. one <laughs> wants to play to an empty room no exactly right um and no one wants to fall flat but i think i think that somehow um and maybe it is because too many of the interactions take place online where you know you can write you can write novels volumes of texts about someone's life and still not scratch the surface yeah and well some- i mean I, i've been doing these conversations and we're, we're probably going to hit the two hour mark and there's not I, I there's so much more i want to dive into uh, you know but some somehow we take again the, the the kind of impossibility of fitting enough into a two-hour podcast yeah and feel like well, we can just throw out a thousand word blog and it will cover it. Yeah. Or a 240 character tweet. Well, I mean, that, yeah, the, me. the nature of tweets is, uh, yeah. is that they are just so limiting. <laughs> so, you know, no, I, think, I think apart from that sort of re- regret that I, that I hold around, could we, should we, ought, ought we have uh, done things differently with certain individuals or, or, you know, like I say, everyone that's kind of come through the business. I feel, I feel always like there's more that we should do that we could do to bring people together yeah. because that sense of community 
Um, even that sense of community that was actually quite touchy and defensive about change that we that we and other breweries instituted back in 2015 and 2016, even even that the context was one. Uh, I don't know whether I'm just fucking nostalgic, but I feel like this because the scene was smaller. Uh, I feel like there there were and people weren't jaded at all. Yeah, it was much more a band of brothers. Like it, it felt like it, and, yeah. I, and I'm and I'm I'm just constantly I'm terrified actually of like what some of the what some of the tetchiness in in beer social media must look like to someone that's heard of craft beer finds an account or two and like fuck they just hate each other yeah it's just like absolute <laughs> stabbing okay um, you know, well, that's that- that's something that i feel a little bit of regret around you know and, and that's something that i'm working on this is the section where we try and get some scope on how our guest sees the next kind of five years of the beer scene moving and also what drives them and what they want to achieve in that time because we love terrible puns like the first time we call it where do we go from beer so I posed this question to Paul and I kind of knew where I think he would be be at with it but nevertheless it was super enlightening you are listening to Track Brewing Co presents the first time and this is our interview with Paul Jones that was a beautiful reflection on everything that's gone on so if we can like flip that to five years forward and how you see, I mean, you kind of covered it a, bit, a little bit there of like how you want it to progress, but how do you see it progressing? Like we're sat here right now, you've set up a beautiful kind of like digital platform, you know, with, with what's happened with COVID, it's really meant that breweries have to become digitalized and much more fluent in that aspect of, of things to, to still build that connection that isn't necessarily seeing someone at the bar and chatting about a beer. Um, so you're always on the front foot of how you see things moving and progressing. So, yeah, give us, give us a little five-year stretch of how you see the beer industry moving. Because do, do you feel like stylistically beers have been explored to the, to the death? Or, or are you much more interested in how brewery kind of functions in society? The latter. I, yeah. I think that there are lots of new experiences that will be, that will be produced for mm-hmm. consumers and I think that, that I think that they're going to be exciting and I think I'm going to be excited about it I think we're probably going to make some of them but not all but I'm but I'm far more interested in again coming back to that like fundamental concern of trying to make uh, a business that affords its staff and um, and consumers a good life mm-hmm. you know what does that what does that mean um I think first and foremost, what I think I see when I see people enjoying beer is I think that I see people consuming values more than liquid. I think people drink the values mm-hmm. of, of the breweries that they, they sometimes project those values onto and sometimes they've heard uh, the, the brewery, the business, the brewer, the, the figurehead espouse certain values. And I think that people are trying to consume those values uh, when they're trying to consume beer. Uh, and so I think that looking at the values that you do uh, operate by, looking at the values that you communicate, the values that you stand on, the principles that you stand on, and how you're proving that with action um, is uh, of greater and greater importance to us. And I think that one of the reasons that I think 
that beer is a really, really good vehicle for social changes. Um, I think the act of drinking is one of becoming vulnerable with strangers in public. That's what we do. Yeah, we don't we don't just become intoxicated. The start point in that is we we Guard, share a guards spa- come down. We share a space. Yeah, we lower our inhibitions. We become vulnerable enough to do something silly that we might have to apologize for. Stupid joke. Uh, hands up all the time for that. <laughs> uh, you know, like terrible attempts at humor. But 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 a lot of it's centered around breaking down our stresses, breaking down our inhibitions becoming uh, closer to each other and also like building up that sense of trust in wider society like we can lower our inhibitions not just in the space in which we consume alcohol with the people that we consume alcohol with but we can go out into the world vulnerable you know a little bit wobbly on the way to the bus mm-hmm. a little bit in need of like a you know a bag of chips or something on the way home we can go out into the world with that sense of uh, being held and I think that there's something that human beings really need uh, I think that's why people come together I think that's that's why spaces of congregation obviously physical spaces of congregation feel a lot more impactful than the digital spaces mm-hmm. of congregation but I think spaces of congregation and shared experience are absolutely essential to people and I think that they are already transformative I mean people come for mind altering experiences yeah, uh, and so I think that we can dig into that. Actually, I think that we can. I think that we can start by by recognizing that that is most of the reason why people consume alcohol, and we can say to ourselves, "Well, what can we do in that space?" Because just just a just a fun, exciting twist on a hop combination is is great. But what next? What else can we do when people are in that malleable state? When they've come to you for. Uh, a mind-altering experience what can you introduce into that space man i absolutely love that i was totally entranced by what you were saying there i love the kind of sense of because i I've, i think i've been trying to figure it out a little bit and through these conversations just like what is it about beer that feels like it has a really strong sense of community and that actually people really want to be part of what the brewery kind of gives out as much as the the liquid that they produce like why is the liquid that they produce almost becoming less important than than other things around it you know uh, and i love that drinking the values and also just like that, that gentle like letting of inhibitions opens conversation up to a whole new a whole new place and then if you're in a in a if you're in a facility of which you know cultivates those conversations then then it, it becomes all easy to do um I mean, we're already yeah. seeing it happen uh, around the the industry, around the around um, conversations that are happening, that are being paid attention to, perspectives that are being paid attention to, mm-hmm. experiences that are being paid attention to. We're already seeing beer start to become more conscious of what it actually is and what yeah. it can do, and I think that I think that um, you know when I when I and again maybe it's a bit nostalgic and maybe it's ignorant but when I think back to uh, what motivated or what at least at least what I think motivated early craft brewers in the states you know I kind of I, I think that a lot of those folk who decided to make a, a more delicious beverage for people to consume in a communal space than what was previously there 
I, I kind of see them more as socialist educators <laughs> rather than some of the capitalists that are, that are now infiltrating the industry. Mm-hmm. You know, people, we all know, we, we won't say them on the podcast because we've got a level of professional conduct to uphold, but we all, we all know um, who's most likely to sell their business in the next few years. You know, it's kind of like a, we can all talk about it later mm-hmm. on when we have a, uh, Zoom call or something, you know. <laughs> like, um, I, I think that we've got this sense of like who's in the business because it's a business to them, and it's just a way of them growing their personal wealth. Yeah. And then I think we know the people that are in it because they see that there's kind of transformative value uh, in in the industry. That there is there is potential uh, for beer to become a really powerful vehicle you know in taproom spaces you get uh you get people from all sorts of different professions gathering um and i think that if we can work uh more fully and and center our work around change work i think that there's a lot that the beer industry can be part of yeah and i think that there's a lot that the beer industry can demonstrate to other industries about the importance of change work yeah because i think that like when we have this conversation about beer some people just want to drink the beer in the glass and that's that's fine if they're enjoying the beer in the glass that is totally cool and i i I was kind of nervous about starting this podcast because i almost felt like i know there's people that are just like oh what you know what is why are you going to talk about beer? Like spend hours talking about beer is nothing. To, it's just a it's just a fizzy drink in a glass. Do you know what I mean? And that that's 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 all right. But if you talk about restaurants or food or something, more people would engage with. Like it's a, beer still feels like this kind of little thing in a box that's maybe a little bit of a jokey side. But it's, there's so much. It's agricultural. It's personal. Okay, it's, so yeah. I mean, we can get into that. So the, the reason why people tend to be reductive around alcohol experiences because that most of the global players are reductive in their marketing they want to keep drawing you back to the hedonistic the party the throwaway experience they want to keep you talking about just the liquid yeah Uh, i mean it might even reflect because they're saying that like drinking's going down and i could kind of see that drinking's going down but i actually think what people are drinking is more important now so people probably drink less, yep. but they, they want something. They want to consume something that's more than just a fizzy thing in a glass. Absolutely. It's got to, it's got to feel um, and inevitably be uh, something that's life-changing. Yeah. And I think that, I think that when, we, when we look at what beer is, as you've said, you know, as, as a brewery, we, we buy agricultural products um, and we buy, you know, we buy machinery uh, and we employ brewing science and creative flair, mm-hmm. and then we output we output the work of thousands of workers to tens of thousands of drinkers. Yeah, it's a, it, this, we've been doing a few like collaborations with the, the supply chain just to give people a little bit of a stretch back from the yep. the journey of everything that goes into that glass, you know, and it, and, and it's incredible. And, and Yakima Chief, you know, we did yesterday and. There's, there's, there's farmers out there with, like you say, thousands of workers cropping, and then that's all coming down to hopefully what is a really enjoyable experience in a glass. Um, I think, Paul, this has been fucking <laughs> awesome, man. I, I, I hope we can do this again and maybe cover some more uh, parts. Of, the, the, the conversation is constantly evolving, um, and you play such a key part in the, the modern beer scene that I feel like there's so much more we could, we could cover. 
But let's say uh, I think we could should land this for now and maybe pick it up again. This is going to be the first episode of series two, so it's going to be a good one. Uh, I'm really excited. So I kind of give you a brief synopsis of what this last question is, which is everything that's gone on, everything that's been before, there's one beer on a table that you just want to drink and no beer after that. And it could be brewed before, you could brew it yourself. What's that beer going to be for you? Uh, I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be a freshly tapped barrel of beer. So it's going to be like two hundred liters, and it's going to be a room full of people, and we're all going <laughs> to just it. have that same beer experience. Uh, you know, uh, you know how it feels, man. Like we, you know, we spend so much time obsessing about beer quality and impact and innovation and progression that beers that you talk over. Um, are way more alluring to to brewers and people that work in the beer industry yeah. than beers that you talk about. And so, you know, if there was one beer uh, that that I would center that kind of like last drink experience around, it would be it would have to be a shared beer experience. So it would be a freshly tapped barrel of lager. Amazing. Uh, and uh, Stein's all round, please. Yes, <laughs> clanking in the room. Paul, dude, thank you so much for, for doing this with me. I really, really appreciate it. That was such an awesome conversation. Pleasure. Um, and we'll pick it up again. Nice one. Take it easy. Thanks, dude. And there we are, episode one in the bag. And I don't know about you, but I thought that was a pretty special one. And like I said in the intro, it's good to kind of get a bit more of a feel about Paul because I know that there's a lot of front-facing stuff where you can hear him have opinions on certain things, whether you like them or not. But there wasn't that much I've found uh, that really kind of dug into who he was as a person. And having known him so long and kind of getting a feel for him before the brewery and stuff, it, it was... It was an interview I was super excited about doing and I hope that, yeah, there was some enlightening stuff there that you enjoyed too. So yeah, we will be back with more episodes. Thanks so much for listening. This is Track Brewing Co. Presents The First Time. I am your host, Stefan Melbourne, and we will be back, maybe not next week, but soon with more episodes. And like always, stay thirsty. Stay thirsty.